right, so back again now to talk about Lacan. This time his essay titled Les Tourdis, but that has a whole meaning and we'll get into that. Before we actually jump in, I'm going to say that this is to be found or can be found uh, in podcast form on Podbean and on iTunes and Spotify under the same name. There'll be links, obviously, for that. Uh, and there's Patreon for anyone that can do that. That'd be cool. If not, you know, obviously don't feel obliged. But for now, I'm joined by, with, by, joined by You're Ben. joined by. I'm joined by Ben, <laughs> who happens to actually know things about Lacan, and I, because I don't. Uh, so Ben, what do you do? Yeah. Hey, so um, I am a fourth year PhD student at the Center for Theory and Criticism at Western University. Um, and I'm currently ADD and writing my PhD on Lacan and philosophy. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and, but I work on Lacanian psychoanalysis as a background in the history of philosophy. Cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to make you say more. <laughs> that, okay. sounded le- that sounded legit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this text is titled Les Tourdis, which in French means... What does it mean? Dizzy? Yeah, nauseous? It's something about turning. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't really speak French very well. Yeah, it's a strange word because I think that when we were talking about it earlier, I'd made the joke that I wanted you to tell me what it was and tell me why I feel the, the way that feel, it is. You when feel dizzy? <laughs> I feel dizzy when I'm reading this text. Because for those that haven't read it, it's extremely difficult. Um, mm-hmm. And for myself, who hasn't actually gotten into Lacan before, I found it really tricky. So what, for you, do you think would be, like, any preliminary details? Um, Well, this is, um, this text is sort of like a greatest hits of the late Lacan. It's, there are several moments in, like, over the course of Lacan's career where he consolidates uh, what he calls his teachings and this is sort of the final consolidation um, that it takes place he writes this somewhere between seminar 20 or somewhere in 19 and seminar 20 and seminar 20 is sort of famous for like formalizing for finalizing the formulas of situation and is inaugurating the period that's called the latest Lacan. Right. And right. after this, he turns to, um, <coughs> like, the mathematical knot, like the Bohemian knot, in a period that's increasingly, like, becoming a topic of study for a lot of Lacanians, but is still highly, like, contestable, contested, like, whether or not it's relevant and like how it's relevant for analysis yeah because i obviously I, well i went and did some other research on this and like really my knowledge of lacan was limited and i found this one explanation i think it was the stanford encyclopedia one which obviously um is like a good introductory thing but anyone who might have more uh, knowledge on the matter mm-hmm. would contest some of their ideas but yeah. someone i can't remember the name of the person that wrote it positioned lacan at least in three stages yeah. to suggest that roughly in Lacan's thought, there are three different Lacans, the early, middle, and late. And these three stages correspond roughly to the imaginary, the symbolic, mm-hmm. and the real. Uh, yeah. What yeah, can you say is, about that? Uh, this is a pretty... Jar- this is uh, Jocelyn Miller comes up with this. Uh, timeline of Lacan. So, like, he's writing about the imaginary in the 50s, so, which is up till about seminar seven, and then <coughs> the symbolic in the 60s, um, and the real by the end in the 70s. And, I mean, yeah, this is like a helpful hermeneutic. Hermeneutic. <laughs> No, that's not the right word. Um, it's like a helpful timeline, um, kind of. A heuristic tool? Heuristic, yeah. But 
I mean, I think it is misleading because he's like, at a, that's at all times he's dealing with all three registers, and he, by the end, he's um, after like seminar twenty, he's trying to think, thinking all three registers at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. So okay, well, how do they work then? Roughly, like these mm-hmm. three registers, these three different yeah, fields. Um, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> it is like it is weird to think about, like what is or even say, like oh, he's thinking about this one at this time or whatever. Um, but so the symbolic imaginary real distinction is like I think one of the most important things that Lacan introduces um, <clears throat> so he distinguishes between three registers of the unconscious um, basically by introducing the symbolic by so we have the imaginary which is just what it sounds like <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <coughs> like it's you can think of it as kind of like purely ideational like the ego it's fantasy what he later called semblance but it's also the body. Okay. How so? Um, so it's like the body as an image. So if you take his mirror stage essay, it's about the formation of the ego, right? But like what? <coughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Formation of the ego, as you were saying. Oh, wait. Are we going again? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, um, the imaginary stage, the imaginary register the register of the imaginary um has to do with fantasy and semblance and the ego and the body and in the essay on the mirror stage um it's about the formation of the ego but the ego like what you see when you look in the mirror is like your body it's not yourself no really well it is yourself but your body and it's that essay is all about like trying to come create a semblance of like wholeness out of a fragmented body and that's what the imaginary um does fundamentally is it tries to cover over with these like contradictions and create a sense of wholeness um (coughs) so like the to give like a figure of the imaginary it would be like the perfect like circle straight up right um and so much of the work of analysis is to um articulate the imaginary sure bring it like to bring it into words and you um realize that it doesn't make sense really and gets distilled and stops playing effect okay so like we have this experience like most like when you're like worst fears and like things like you might or we all have this experience where, like, you're anxious about something, but, like, as soon as you sit down and talk to it about some, with someone, you're like, <coughs> yeah, that's, like, stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it's ridiculous. Um, and that's, like, basically, that's, like, a snippet of the work of analysis. And so, <coughs> Freud distinguishes between, like, the pleasure principle and the reality principle. And Lacan, um, starts articulating the real on the bit as like neither so we you have to kind of set the the real aside um (coughs) and so we have the imaginary and then the symbolic is like is like the linguistic register of the unconscious sure and it like lacan introduces it basically noticing that like like what do we encounter in analysis mm-hmm. yeah it, like what do you think we encounter in analysis dave uh <laughs> well no that makes sense to me because i think that and i think that this will lead into this essay specifically mm-hmm. in a good way because when he makes a distinction between s- what is said and what is meant in the yeah. act of saying uh i think we're getting this sense that you know Anything that anyone can come up with at the fir- in the first instance is not necessarily something that the 
the analyst can take away from in a meaningful way. Yeah. And, you know, without getting too much in my own personal stuff, this is something I've experienced a lot where it takes work, you know, and I'm not necessarily saying that this demands the intervention of an analyst. It might. But even if a person was coming to terms with their own stuff, I would only assume that it would take a great deal of time. And we are always, you know, and this is the little bit I kind of understand of Lacan is that with language, we'll always, there'll always be a kind of deficit. Like we'll always be met with a kind of barrier Mm -hmm. where there's um, an impasse where we are unable to communicate what our feelings want, what our feelings might actually be because they're so stubbornly individual and any word out there doesn't doesn't do that job for sure so it's in that way that i see that you know by how you described it any kind of analysis of someone encounters that roadblock that is you know the symbolic and however it's however it's affected or nailed into us through our schools or institutions or you know what family whatever mm-hmm. yeah i guess that's what i see think about <laughs> it, but well okay. correct me if i'm wrong no, this is a super interesting answer. Um, I mean, because like I asked what you think you encounter in analysis, and I expect you to just say like your thoughts or your unconscious or something. But um, this like is kind of a demonstration of like precisely the confusion that like earlier, early Lacan is really rallying against. Oh damn! Did you just analyze me? that um like where like that like first off like that you have thoughts and feelings that are like not that are like separate separable from language like oh you run into language as kind of a block yeah or like as an impossibility but no that's not true um that's not true for lacan it's well or just generally both okay (laughs) all right um because it's really it's through language that like your thoughts and feelings and fantasies um and desires get articulated and become like sophisticated and like what they are as like you have like a a fully like fleshed out psychic life and that only occurs like via language but we encounter that as um we think that we are encountering that as a kind of block or a kind of impossibility that there's something more there's some like rich psychic life behind it all that like you can't articulate and that's like precisely the imaginary trying to like cover over the real the impossible which in this in Laetrede um and in late Lacan goes by the name of there is no sexual relation right yeah but we'll get there. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. So right. then, okay, that's good. <laughs> to, okay, to hop into this, he gives us two sentences almost right off the bat. Yeah. Right? And I think that these, um, I don't find it always clear, but it seems like throughout the whole essay, he's always making reference back to these two sentences. They seem to okay. kind of form the crux of what he's yeah. saying. Uh, so let's read them. Number one, and this is the translation. That one might be saying remains forgotten behind what is said in what is heard. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. Now, number two, this enunciation, which appears to be an assertion, since it is produced in a universal form, is in fact modal, existential as such. So the subjunctive by which its subject is modulated, testifying to this. So what does that mean? (laughs) If if you know. Um, If I know. I feel like uh, we should say that we're, like, as an aside, that we're using the Cormac McGallagher translation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because there is no official translation of this text. And Cormac isn't that, his translation is not considered official? No, he has, like, he has bootleg translations of most of the seminar. I I consider them bootleg. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they're not... They're not translations of what gets... This is translated of what's printed in French because it's one of the um, Ecree. Right. But the seminars are... Um, the ones that are trans- published in French are first, like, Le Dover by Jocelyn Miller and, like, 
there's lots of controversy around his versions. These are like straight from the recordings. Yeah. For yeah. better or worse. Yeah. But so we're working from that translation, not from the French. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but so the first sentence, um, that one might be saying remains forgotten behind what is said and what is in what is heard is like so we're distinguishing between the fact of saying yeah um see because i understood it in the way that you were describing the symbolic presenting mm -hmm. a barrier uh where i understand this here as him describing that the thing without necessarily defining it or, or just or illustrating it that thing of what is spoken that doesn't actually come out in the words nor is heard by the listening person but is nevertheless there yeah and I, I understood that as the you know the task of the analyst is to find that uh so yeah i don't know what you think okay okay that. well no um yeah i think you're on the right track this but this is where we need the um like the analytic distinction between symbolic imaginary and real right so um, sure. the fact we have the fact of saying it's forgotten behind what is said and what is heard so there's no um in the to locate things in terms of the bormian knot um so what is the bormian knot so the bor it's basically like well okay a bormian knot is um three rings that are tied together in like a triangle shape mm -hmm. such that if you cut any one ring all three of them fall apart sure so you need each one to <clears throat> each one connects all three and none of them has primacy and we use the bormian knot to visualize the relation between the three registers the symbolic the real and the imaginary yeah so the imaginary, you have symbolic and real a section of overlap between symbolic and real yeah real imaginary real like between each of them <clears throat> and then the object a is in the middle in all three what is that that's you okay oh my god <laughs> <laughs> but you're also like in the symbolic as a subject and in the imaginary as an ego and you're between all three as desire but so you find meaning and um reality the constitution of reality in like the kantian sense of like the subject constitutes reality. Yep. Located between the symbolic and the imaginary. In between. So yeah. they don't. So in their overlap. In their overlap. Okay. So there's no meaning. Yeah. Without an intermixing of the imaginary. And the symbolic. Yeah. Sure. But so. <clears throat> sure. The fact of saying is purely symbolic. Right. So. It... And then what is said and what is heard introduce meaning. So that's reality. Meaning well, is it word. introduces the imaginary. Okay, okay. So what is said is the symbolic, or what is what is said and heard is the symbolic? What is said. What is said. Yeah, you're just signifying. So is... Okay, what is said... The fact of saying is purely symbolic. And that produces <clears throat> meaning, which mm -hmm. then opens... presents a foray into the imaginary. Yeah, so in what is, the way I would read it is, you have a fact of saying, um, <clears throat> and then what is said is like, the meaning that I'm trying to produce, what is heard would be the meaning that you, like, produce, the meaning that you produce. Okay. In, and they both follow from my fact of saying. Okay. And so the fact of saying <clears throat> is what you encounter in analysis. Um, and so Lacan distinguishes between two levels of speech, between the level of the statement and the enunciation. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I speak at the level of the statement, but the unconscious speaks at the level of the enunciation. Okay. It's what's not said. So the enunciation is what is not said. Kind of. It's like it's a, what the, the unconscious, unconscious says. Yeah. What the unconscious says so what the unconscious is saying yeah saying in what's in the fact of saying saying but it is not what is said yeah it's not what's stated not, not what's, what's like out there yeah okay. or yeah so <clears throat> the 
Yeah. And like in speaking, there are two levels of meaning. Yeah. And this is like a basic Freudian distinction, like latent and or manifest and latent content of a dream. Right. Yeah. Of like unconscious formations. Lacan recognizes that like these things only are effective um, <clears throat> once they're spoken. Yeah. And so in speech you have the stated and the enunciated levels. Sure. So for Lacan then, and this is a bit of an aside, what do we? How can we make sense of pre-linguistic or non-linguistic, non-human actors? Or well, that's that's a bad one. But like <laughs> prior to language for humans, it, Lacan doesn't exist. There like, is no... there, there there was no unconscious when there's no language. Well, yeah, there's no. Well, we would. I mean, the proper Lacan response would be there's no prior to language. Um, <clears throat> like, first off, there is no unconscious without language. Full stop. The unconscious is an effect of speech. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> like, it's, it's not, not a thing in itself. Yeah. Well, and it's not like a <laughs> psychical entity. Yeah. Like, behind consciousness. Right. Right. Um, that's Lacan's will constantly say the unconscious is a misnomer. It's a misnomer. <clears throat> So, but oh, for, so for the second sentence, then when he says that this enunciation, which appears to be an assertion, since it is produced in a universal form, is in fact modal, existential mm-hmm. as such. When he's talking about this enunciation, is he talking about uh, to use it in a very uh, vulgar way, the language of the unconscious, or the the enunciation <laughs> belonging to the unconscious as being the saying of the unconscious? Um. Okay, well, here I think we're going to make... I'm going to make a leap of <laughs> judgment. We're talking, like, we're... He's trying to get us to the formulas of sexuation. Um, <clears throat> so this, when we say this enunciation appears in, as an assertion produced in a universal form, we're talking about the phallic function. Okay. What is that? <laughs> so the phallic function... Um, is the phallus is the little the phi the greek letter okay yeah 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 um, it's like so the, phi x you the sideways f- egg with a little line through it well a circle with a line through it it looked like more of a sphere whatever yeah. <laughs> yeah, i mean a sphere is a circle <laughs> so, okay <laughs> fine ben fine <laughs> okay. an ellipsis but Ellipsy. so Ellipsy. The phallic function um, is basically the signifier for castration. (laughs) So it's um, a signifier. Castration is the fact of being subject to the unconscious. So the fact of as soon as you speak, you're subject to the unconscious. So all speaking beings are subjects to um, have a subject of the unconscious and the the phallic function is a signifier without meaning it's purely symbolic and it touches on the real okay and so it operates only in the unconscious but it we okay okay so but the phallic function also as you just mentioned deals with castration right yes okay and that castration is also signified with that image of the circle with the line through it right yeah the phi now, connecting the phi to the unconscious is, or it's an empty signifier in that it's an, it's an impossibility? Um, it, well, yeah, so it operates in the place of an impossibility, in the symbolic. Because the impossibility <clears throat> is reserved for the real? Well, the re- yeah, the, um, so the symbolic impossibility is the real. And so, um... Okay. But so, okay, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you kind of have to get everything, like, in play at once. Um, So, yeah, that's a good point, then. You mentioned we go from here, you're setting it up for us to get to these, the Mm -hmm. project of sexuation, or the various different, what was the term you used, steps, or? The formula of of sexuation. Mm -hmm. How do we get from this, then these two sentences, to there? So, yeah, so the leap is um, from the fact that uh, that there are speaking beings to 
the fact that there are two um, sexes. And so, in we, so when we talk about two sexes, uh, we mean something different than um, purely like biological sex. We're not talking about like your genitals. Okay. And we're not talking about gender either. We're not talking about identity. <clears throat> sure. So there is room in Lacanian psychoanalysis for um, transgender phenomenon and like all sorts of variation. And it's like there's a frequent refrain that like <clears throat> there are like men are women in the Lacanian sense and women are men in the Lacanian sense. Um, <clears throat> but so you're we're talking about so sexuation is different than sex and gender okay right. <clears throat> it's about the modality of like the subject of the unconscious so <clears throat> and there are only two logical possibilities that correspond that are like so you have a masculine subject of the unconscious who is an all or a feminine subject who is not all okay so we're getting, we're trying to get from the fact that there are speaking beings to um, the contingency of there are two kinds of speaking beings. Right. Okay. So, insofar as this is to be found in the unconscious, mm-hmm. we cannot limit it to that alone because you're saying from these speaking beings, it seems as though even on the surface, and I'm not trying to say that this has to, uh, this correlates with like. Uh, gender identity or uh, genitalia yeah but that does it then manifest itself to some extent on the surface like is there a way that in what is be what is said and what is heard we can see this um i mean there is like it's always kind of frustrated me this refrain that like your like masculine or feminine like sexuation is totally contingent it's like we can say like we because it is um but then it begs the question or it leads to the question like okay why is like one form of a subject masculine and the other form feminine Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you do have to like presume that like well like there were probably way more men walking into the clinic that had a masculine subject of the unconscious. Okay. Way more women that had a feminine subject of the unconscious. And there's no necessary connection <clears throat> between, like, your junk or your identity <laughs> or your, like, yeah. um, unconscious. But there is a correlation. Okay. That is explainable on only on an individual basis. Okay, what does that look like? It looks like psychoanalyzing your personal history. Right, but then wouldn't it... And I mean, and I there's not really like an... You can't really answer how someone becomes a masculine or a feminine like subject of the unconscious. Yeah. That's the point, is it's contingent. And it's how at some moment in time you had to respond to language um castrating you okay so but all right i can get on board with that but i feel like i have to ask i have to follow up with that because you said if we're dealing with personal history to some extent Mm -hmm. and this this becomes almost a stubbornly individualistic affair which psychoanalysis tends it has to be yeah right um then it seems as though it demands a necessary evaluation of the various institutions that we exist in on sure. a daily basis. So my question would be, how much do those actually affect, you know, the determination of someone mm-hmm. as, you know, the occupying a masculine unconscious or okay. a feminine unconscious? Yeah. Um, well, like, first off, we should just, like, note that, like, there is only through Lacanian psychoanalysis is there like room to analytically um, talk about how the social operates on the unconscious, on the individual, and that's because the symbolic order 
is an aspect of, <clears throat> or is like, what structures the unconscious. It's one of the three right. like fundamental registers. So, <clears throat> how you couldn't say, and I don't know if you could say in any straightforward way that like these inst institutions sexuate you in this or that way, they produce this or that effect. Um, <clears throat> because of the like structuring effects that get produced on you are like so contingent and you're mm -hmm. so young and they have to do with like what sticks. Yeah. What sticks when you're little, when yeah. you're an infant, but undoubtedly, um, like some do more than others. And I don't have like, I'm not a practicing analyst. I don't have like these kinds of answers, but I know, I mean, I do know that like there is a frequent or like, from the literature I've read, like, <laughs> analysts are constantly worried, are, like, because Lacan always talks about, like, the decline of the father, the name of the father, <clears throat> the decline of, like, authority figures, and analysts are constantly worried about, like, are, like, the, so the decline of a figure that castrates is what the father is, more or less. So a figure that institutes the unconscious. Right, right. And analysts are constantly worried, is this going to create psychotic subjects? What <clears throat> will? Like, with the loss of the... the yeah, if there's no one father. to say no. To say, okay. like, no, like, to lay down the law of desire. Yeah. <clears throat> and that comes before sexuation, I think. The, the, the being... being sub like... So, registering that you've been subjected to the unconscious. Right. So, bringing yeah. in the phallic function as a signifier. Right. That but you're situation always... responds to. But the way you phrased that, it was as though that happens before you're aware of it, not... You, it doesn't happen before it actually happens. Yeah. So, we're... Um, then we're dealing... Not with like time in like the sense that we experience consciously, but like structural temporality. Okay. So it's um, <clears throat> logical time, is what Lacan calls it, an early, very early essay. So it's basically like this has to happen before that has to happen before that. Right. So like, <clears throat> does he? This is obviously a simple question, but does he kind of temporalize it in a way that's understandable like does he does he say around around nine months the child is born they that's exactly what he wants to get away from okay so, so that's that's a move away from the freudian yeah the like stages of the erotic zone he wants to talk about interesting because in psychoanalysis the diagnostic criteria there are like three general categories psychosis perversion and neurosis right <clears throat> and so like developmentally like you you're either psychotic pervert perverse or neurotic mm -hmm. um and so like each of them has to do with like your relation to the big other so which is what's the, that the big other is the name of the symbolic order but that's not As synonymous a, with like the castrating yeah it's figure. the name of the symbolic order um insofar as we fantasize it as a whole as complete okay which we necessarily do so is it is it like an ideal ego for like not us no it's the big other oh my god <laughs> all right let me try to think about this first i mean i think like when we think about like what is what is the big other like the place to start is in like a, the naive sense the big other the thing that is not me is that yeah is it's greater something than it's me? like god it's like ideal like ideological okay it's like the big like the guy that makes sense of everything for me but it is not the father it is it's totally the father it, like it, well it, it's okay. not the father but i mean it's like could be like the father so it seems to me that from that the big other is something that you kind of you don't model yourself after but it's something that you've grown to kind of generate yourself in distinction to it mm -hmm. um it has to well it is the because it is the symbolic order it has to appear as other 
And so yep. this movement from towards like otherness, because it also the symbolic language, like we said, like regulates desire. Okay. So like it has to appear as an other is regulating my desire. Yeah. And when it doesn't appear that language like because obviously language is external to us we're neurotics we know that <clears throat> right the psychotic doesn't okay because this and that's the fear that the analysts have like if we lose the there was you mentioned specifically the loss of the kind of authority figure father yeah. or anything other something to like strictly say no and strictly right. make that separation yeah for you as an infant yeah um it becomes harder to externalize the symbolic order right so when we think about the mirror stage then and i think that this is probably the text most people are familiar with you know we think of the moment the child sees himself in a mirror For sure. separate from anything else yeah but by what you're saying that seems like that's not the only thing going on it, it seems like it would be impossible for a child to actually recognize themselves as on their own on their own like yeah. they wouldn't be able to do that themselves. Well, yeah, to recognize themselves, to recognize that it's them. Because you know, not only do you have all these other kind of abstract forces working on them in some way, mm. via this kind of like, you know, relative positionality in in terms of the big other, yeah. but you also seem to need like a kind of, like a direct intervention, almost like like that father figure, you know, that's actually, yeah not punishing but guiding well you need like in a very because during well there in the mirror stage essay he characterizes it in terms of the infant looking in the mirror the infant has like experience of itself as like i can't control my limbs right it's like it's a fragmented body but what it sees in the mirror is a whole right whole body that Mm -hmm. seems to have control over itself right and what he later develops in the seminars i don't remember which one um <clears throat> that there has there does kind of have to be someone there to point out like no you are the that image you're the one in the mirror so a parental figure makes sure. the connection for you with language right yeah and that facilitates your being entered into that kind of contract of yeah. language you know and so lacan is interested in like the structural implications of this and not so much the individual like details of like is it like sure. your mom or your dad that says that or like yeah. what's going on is the water in the background or it's just like, the big other yeah it's, just, it's, just, it's greater than it's you. just like someone's there yeah and says and does it with via like via um a signifying function right not necessarily linguistic but like signifies for you yeah <laughs> no you are that yeah and that's kind of the elementary definition of the signifier right it signifies the subject for another signifier okay wait wait a second <laughs> so the signifier signifies the subject for another signifier yes instead of like the Caesarian kind of Caesarian usual um way of thinking of it was the signifier signifies a some external meaning like something in the world yeah for another signifier yeah it signifies because in sir he's like constantly not constantly but he's like no the signifier signifies like an idea uh-huh yeah but it always signifies <laughs> yeah. yeah it doesn't yeah, signify yeah, yeah. an objective idea not some like naive platonic ideal in god like in god's mind or something in your mind mm-hmm so it's but really it signifies you yeah okay so the speaking subject okay so say it again then how lacan reimagines that this signifier signifies the subject for another signifier so the first part of that the signifier signifies the subject seems to follow from the disassure thing because Mm -hmm. we don't you know we aren't uh using these signifiers to communicate the language of god or some ideal in fact, it's doing. We're we can find yeah. out a lot about ourselves from these signifiers. Yeah. So that part, all right. From this asur, the signifier signifies the subject, which then, for so and then, it can only. Ha- so the whole point of Caesarian linguistics is that um, language takes on meaning. Um, synchronically, 
So yep. it all at once. So yep. each signifier only has meaning in terms of like insofar as there are all the other signifiers. Yeah. So like basically you have to be able to say what the meaning is. Right. Right. Okay. So like the subject, the subject is always a barred subject. It's always a lack in the symbolic order, uh -huh. which is where object A and desire Jewishans the object exists. A is encircled in the the Bromian <laughs> knot of the yeah. real imaginary and the symbolic. Yeah. So you get inserted in this lack between signifiers. Okay. All right. So what is that? Okay, because th there's something from this text that I want to mm -hmm. bring up. In I think in relation to that, how do we make sense then of his refusal to acknowledge a meta language? There is no meta language. There is no meta language. Why is there no meta-language? <clears throat> because there's no big other. Ever? I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, but I thought you needed the big other to like... Well, because the big other does not exist. Okay. But there is a big other. The big other is there, but it doesn't... Yeah, the big other is there insofar as you respond to it. It's there, like as a fantasy but as like a purely like symbolic like there's no the point of both sayings there is no big other which is like one of the fundamental parts of like feminine um sexuality because the woman is the big other is the other in the sexual relation <laughs> in relation to man well man makes her the other okay but, um, so, but she knows there's no big other. <clears throat> but basically it means that, like, there's no big other, there's no meta-language, means there's no totality of the symbolic order. There's no way of speaking about language from outside of language. Um, no way of speaking about it, like, you could say, like, objectively, like, from like a god's eye point of view, subspecies, eternitatis, anything like that. <clears throat> yeah. You're always already in language. And even talking about language, you're like in the symbolic. He's just completing so, Kant's system. Like he's just... He's like... Well, it's because Kant is right. <laughs> in like a very basic sense. That if Kant's not right, then we're psychotic. <laughs> But, like, I think that there is a certain amount of credence, or um, there is a certain potential to that because it it doesn't, you know, posit there to be that. You know, uh, if there if the big other was actually manifest mm -hmm. in some form or other, you couldn't help but think that that would then generate some other kind of like extreme version of um, like inferiority that would make the human just like inoperable like if yeah. if that thing was out there you just like how would you how would you exist because it would just it'd be like like it'd be like going to kings and i don't know that was For gonna sure. be a bad analogy no it would be i mean the big other um grounds are reality too it's yeah. pro like this is the kind of naive uh like renaissance pre-enlightenment like worldview of that like god like literally introduces meaning into the world and like defines our words for us and like the definitions of our words correspond to the things that we encounter <clears throat> so like when you, if you want to say there's a big other this is the kind of worldview that you're getting at but like the What's useful about the concept of the big other, and you find this in, like, Zizek makes, like, <clears throat> great use of this concept with, with, like, ideology. Okay. The big other takes on different ideological forms and different yeah. formations, operates in different ways, like the fatherland, the motherland, and things like that. <clears throat> and, like, the whole point is, like, Lacan's point is that, like, no matter what you want to say the big other is it's not there is no big other but it still like produces these material effects sure at the level of the social 
Sure. Not just at the level of, like, psychotic delusion. <laughs> Not just at the level of your individual fantasies. But what we do in our social relations. Right. <clears throat> and, like, that's kind of ties into the four discourses, too. Right. What are the four discourses? <laughs> what are the four discourses? Well, was, so long as you're in the master's discourse, you're serving the big other, at the very least. And you kind of always are. Okay, what do you mean What do you mean by that? So, okay, the four discourses are mm-hmm. the master, university... Hysteric. Hysteric, and... And the analyst discourse. The analytic analyst. discourse. Analytic discourse. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. um, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and give you the theory of the four discourses. Yeah, yeah, you don't need to delineate that be, in like uh, a very clear way. But what do you but, mean when you um, say the master discourse fits in with the big other? So... Subordinate... There are... It. The four discourses are... The discourse... Discourse is basically what Freud means by civilization. When in civilization and its discontents. Or in like group psychology or something like that. It's a social link. Right. So you, there are four kinds of social link. Um, and like, whether or not there's like a fifth is like Lacan mentions capitalist discourse in television. Um, Alan, my supervisor, Alan Perro, has like a great article about the economic discourse that's more convincing. Um, <clears throat> but so all of the discourses our social link and so there are four terms in the discourse s1 the master signifier s2 the battery of signifiers so every signifier but the master signifier okay (laughs) so like there's for lacan there's the signifying chain which is the um signifiers uh, taken diachronously. So, like, when we speak, we speak in time. They're one after the other. Yep. Um, the signifying battery is all the signifiers at once. So, like, the dictionary <laughs> is, like, literally all the signifiers at once. Yeah. And then the third term is barred as the subject. Okay. The subject, who's subject to the unconscious, and object A, the object cause of desire. Which is real. And it's encircled by the real imaginary yeah, yeah. and the symbol. It's the other side of the Bard S. So you're in two, like, you're really in two positions Bard S and Object A. But Object A's are also in the world. So, like, your cell phone is in Object A because you enjoy it. Okay. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, where were we going with this? Well, I was going <laughs> to ask the following. Uh, and this gets into the second section of this because I was specifically wondering about what he meant by Freud saying and what is that, mm-hmm. how does that relate to this meta language or this impossible yeah. meta language? Uh, because it would seem to me, and I don't know for sure, but I think be Lacan, more confident. Lacan would, would be like, you know, Freud is just trying to find this meta language. Freud is just trying to get mm. at this possible big other in the form of like, and there's no there's no one Freud. Like Freud changed his mind a lot. But like it seemed like the project was getting at that kind of possibility to which by what you're saying, you know, Lacan is a lot more suspicious of. So wh- when he says Freud's saying here, what is he saying about Freud? Well, no, 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 no. You got Okay. I thought you should be confident, but you got Freud all wrong. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, um Freud is saying there's no meta language. Okay. And there's no sexual relation. Okay. The first, the first part I understand, but now the second, you lost me with that now. Um, well, they're the same. Okay, well, okay. Wait, wait. <laughs> sexual relation and meta language are the same. No, no sexual relation. No sexual relation and meta language is the and same. And there's no meta language. So, oh my God. So there's. So there's. It's. It's the non-relation, non-relation. Then, like, it leads to symbolic impossibility. So, um, so, but that's kind of everything at once. So, 
Moving on to page two. <laughs> page two. Um, yeah, I mean, so in this essay, like, it is weird. Section two is called Freud saying, and then he talks about math. Yes, the math human. <laughs> what not. And so, as far as I know, Freud does not talk about math. So, yeah, no. like, I just want to, like, put that out there. Yeah, the one Freud essay I've read, uh... Yeah, no, <laughs> he's, it's... I don't remember any math. So, but what Freud does talk about, like, what Lacan... Like, Freud makes the unconscious speak. Um, <clears throat> and so, we can talk about, like, the, the proof of this... We can talk about this in several ways. So, like, there are the case studies, um, which at least Badio at least characterizes as a kind of like they're the proof that we have that like there is psychoanalysis, right? Or at least there was psychoanalysis. Um, and you have to presuppose for all of this that there is psychoanalysis fair which um contemporary discourse does not for the most part like our discourse um <clears throat> around like neuroscience that everything's reducible to the brain yeah to okay. like firing neurons to yep. like biology that everything is explainable mm-hmm. um forecloses this forecloses the statement that there is psychoanalysis sure <clears throat> that makes sense to me yeah that's fair what do we mean like and like we it's hard to deny that there are like unconscious thoughts unconscious desires and things like that and like these remain explainable in terms of the brain or evolution even if poorly explained um but so what freud introduces um is Freud int- introduces language and sex into the unconscious <clears throat> and the sexuality as the point of uh, as the kind of unarticulable point here Lacan talks about it as absence the lack of sense right uh, which is precisely the real right if we recall the Bormian knot <clears throat> the what's so what's excluded from the symbolic and the imaginary it's the is real. sense in the real. But so the non, like the absent, still produces effects on language. So, so okay, keep... so the imaginary and the symbolic exclude sense. No, they make sense. They make sense. So it's the lack of sense that... Yeah, the absence. Is, is uh, complicit is, with the real. Is real is real okay but it uh, right manifests in the symbolic as an impossibility that produces effects it's productive in the way that like a hate in um this is like Zizek's whole project to show that it's akin to like a hegelian dialectic it's dialectically productive that the impossibility produces signifying and ju- effects and produces jewish effects okay so like you enjoy speaking yeah, yeah. your enjoyment um follows like a linguistic structure yeah um yeah okay so what freud introduces is like is sexuality as more than like intercourse is more than like banging and like he can't help like if you read the three essays on sexuality like he returns again and again to like it's like polymorphously perverse. It's like we can't pin it down. <clears throat> and Lacan wants to say it's absence. It's real. Mm-hmm. It's like the erogenous zones are like inarticulable, inimaginable, things like that. So that's what we're trying to get at the inarticulable, inimaginable. And Lacan, <clears throat> that's what the phallic function covers over. Okay. But the phallic function is, we only ever deal with the phallic function. We use it in our sexuation. 
and like what it really manifests as in our like in the clinic and so in our lives is like the non-relation the sexual non-relation which is where the real is possible well which is the impossible that is the real and the whole point of the Lacanian real which I think this is one of my favorite authors Olenka Zupinchek says the whole point of the Lacanian real is that the impossible happens okay <laughs> How? So sexual, so non, so like in a kind of, in the smallest sense, um, sexual, like there is no sexual relation, but we still fall in love. Sure. So how I understand that is that it's like, it's utopian. Uh, and the reason I mm-hmm. say that is because, and this is going to Freud, like from the age of zero, you are a sexual being and that sexuality is something that you are taught in so many different ways to get rid of and in order for, for sure. you to enter into the kind of a social contract because taking from Lacan that is exactly what it you know is constituted by the symbolic you must engage with that to some yeah. extent you must come to terms with that so to imagine something totally otherwise and that's how I'm gathering it no no, no you're good okay um it demands that you must somehow renounce what you cannot renounce, that is, sexuality that precedes you in many ways mm-hmm. and that, you know, subtends your character yeah. that, that is you in order to arrive at this possibility that, as you just said, imagine that, love without sex or having the that, you not being condemned to our flesh prisons. <laughs> mm. Well, yeah. I don't correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I want to say when we talk, like, that love happens is like you could almost call it like the hard problem for psychoanalysis because there should it shouldn't. Oh, uh, that's interesting. And so, like, a lot of, um, well, it shouldn't like it happens in transference, but like a love relation happens between people. Mm-hmm. Um. But, like, everything about sexuality brings us back to, like, the polymorphously perverse subject. And, like, the subject's desire, the subject's making a, like, desired object and enjoying. And a lot of, um, like, a lot of these repressive discourses that, like, say, like, a Foucauldian would pick up on have, like, are trying to reduce... Um, all the possibility, like all, like, yeah, are repressing different sexual possibilities to like intercourse, to like what is most easily a semblance of sexual relation. Right. And so the Lacanian question is like, we're not saying like don't have sex. Yeah. We're not saying that this isn't important, but um, <clears throat> that a relation occurs by other means. Including, like, including, like, sexuality, including all the things that we normally think, normally think, like, that a relation occur, like, first off, it occurs contingently. Right. Um, so it's impossible and contingent. And these are, um, it's log- these are logical modalities opposed to necessity and possibility. Sure. And that's the real. <clears throat> So we get that right at the beginning almost when, uh, you know, in this first, in the second Mm -hmm. sentence when he's saying that we think it's a universal form when it is in fact modal. Yeah. And so it's like, that's where to like kind of get off topic. That's where I like Badu's like conception of love is like a universal truth that creates a subject too. Okay. Because, like, Lacanian psychoanalysis has a hard time talking about love outside of the transference, mm-hmm. outside of, like, the love of the analyst. And, like, for Badu, like, if love is an eternal truth, it, like, becomes the subject itself. Yeah. Like, 
it's a kind of like modality of subjectivity. That's interesting. Well, shit. <laughs> Here we're rounding. That's good. All right, we're rounding an hour right now. An hour. That's good. All right, so we're gonna pause that there. We're gonna take a break, and we'll continue this on in the next one. Page so. five. <laughs> Is that? Are we that far? Really? I'm impressed. Page four. <laughs> yeah, no, something like that. All right. For the, so for those that listen this far, thank you. And tune in for...